This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. And I'm Dr. Frank Lipman, New York Times bestseller and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Thorn Podcast. Thanks for joining us again. How are things going for you, Frank? Anything interesting or new in your life? No, it's uh, I'm just enjoying this new rhythm of life of doing some mainly virtual, some going into the office being able to spend time with my grandson. So it's actually, I'm enjoying this rhythm. I'm being a little bit more self-reflective, sort of pondering the medical system and thinking about now is really a good time for change because of what's going on, because I do think this has exposed the weaknesses of not only our medical system, of our, you know these days our political system, the economic system, agricultural system, all the systems, I think need a change, but the, I think this is, as physicians, and, and I know the two of us have been thinking about this for the last 30 odd years, this is such a ripe time to change how we practice or deliver healthcare because the pandemic has exposed the weaknesses of our medical system. So I've been quite reflective on you know how we do that, you know, because, you know, and I'm sure this happens to you all the time, when I, when I think about over the years when people come to me with a gastrointestinal problem, which you would think was a severe problem, a gastroenterologist should be really the one that you could refer someone like that to, but it's usually not the case because the gastroenterologists don't, I think, treat it particularly well. And I know today we're talking about cardiovascular health, and sometimes I feel that way about cardiologists too. Our traditional doctors are just too trigger happy with, you know, if you've got high cholesterol, here's a statin. If you've got GERD, here's a proton pump inhibitor, here's an axiom without looking for what the underlying issues are. So I've been thinking more and more about how we actually change things. And I think the time is ripe now. Yeah, I, I like that word ripe. I think that the public is, is ready or something else. And and I really feel like it's my life work to put out information that's evidence-based. I mean, there's so much information now, it seems like anybody can say anything. Yep. You and I have been studying these principles for a long time, and it's really gratifying to see the medical research come around and support these concepts. You know, the idea that you can treat chronic inflammation with diet or heart disease with diet. And so that's really gratifying, I think, to see that there's evidence, strong evidence behind what we're doing. And so our job is to really be advocates for evidence. Right. So that that takes us directly into the main topic for this week, which is cardiovascular health. So uh, you've already mentioned the approach that cardiologists tend to take to dealing with cardiovascular health, you know, uh, a statin for all ills. Yep. So uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Well, 
uh, the commonest thing that I see when it comes to cardiovascular health is someone will come in to see me, and I'm sure this you see this all, all the time, and they have a traditional cholesterol test, and we should even talk about what cholesterol is and you know, how that's sort of, in a way, or LDL cholesterol and lowering cholesterol, etc. But they come in with, uh, after doing a traditional cholesterol test where they measure your LDL, your HDL, your VLDL, and triglycerides, and because your total cholesterol is high, the doctor says, oh, your cholesterol is high, you need a statin. I mean, that is such an archaic way of, of treating. I mean, that is so primitive. Now, I mean, in traditional medicine, we have these advanced lipid panels, which yep. are, give yep. you so much more information. You know, all the only information that I look at when I see someone who comes in, because I hardly ever do just a standard lipid panel unless it's you know, someone someone who's very young or there's no issue there. But a standard lipid panel, the only number that I find helpful is the triglyceride to the HDL ratio. And if that's over two, that could be a, a problem or a marker for maybe insulin resistance or heart disease. But I don't find any help in a, in a regular cholesterol test. And so many doctors, GPs in particular, do that test, the cholesterol comes back 250, and they say, oh, your cholesterol's high, you need a statin. And I just, I, I still can't believe that's happening, and even with cardiologists. So I am now, and I'm definitely not a cardiologist. I mean, luckily, I have an integrative cardiologist who works in my office. But, you know, I, as a routine, do an advanced lipid panel because an advanced lipid panel gives you so much more information, which is essential to sort of assess if there's cardiac disease, how severe it is, how aggressive one needs to be with with treatment. So, you know, that would be my initial take, but is, is that what you see as well? Yeah, I think one way to explain this is using an analogy, which is that, you know, initially scientists realized that everything is made of molecules, and then later they realized everything's made of atoms, and then they realized that the atoms have all these, you know, sub-molecular particles. And then we got down to quarks that have charm. And, you know, the further down you go, the more complicated it gets. Now, in medical school, I actually was doing research on the, the quote, good cholesterol, HDL, and even published a paper on that. That was 39 years ago. When we first started measuring cholesterol, you'd take a person's blood and you'd skim off this top layer of fat and measure that and say, oh, here's your cholesterol. And then later we realized, oh, there's some parts of cholesterol that are beneficial. And then that kept on going. And we began to realize, well, you know, you have some people who have really high cholesterol. They have no heart disease at all. And other people who have low cholesterol and they have rip-roaring heart disease. So it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. And what explains that? Well, it gets back to this pathologist. I think he was a German uh, named Verkau who in the 19th century was studying people that had died of heart disease and looking at their arteries under a microscope. And he said, I think the problem here is inflammation. He wasn't saying that it's the cholesterol buildup in your arteries that's the problem. It's whether the cholesterol is inflamed or whether that the cholesterol, which is a fat, whether it goes rancid. Right, oxidized. Yeah, whether it is oxidized, and that is really, really a critical issue. You can have 
pretty high cholesterol levels, and if they don't get oxidized, they don't cause inflammation in the body, you know? So that takes you down a whole different pathway. Instead of just saying you got to lower the cholesterol, and I, and I want to be clear, I have a few patients whose cholesterol is genetically elevated, and it is so high. I saw a person the other day, their, her LDL cholesterol was 300. And I said, you know, your cholesterol is so high. I don't know if we can get around using a low-dose statin for you. So I'm not 100% opposed to statins. I'm opposed to putting it in the water supply. Yep. Right? And just giving it as a knee-jerk routine thing. It's part of the process. And I do see people with high cholesterol for whom I don't think a statin is indicated. If there's no sign of inflammation in their body, if I do a calcium score, a heart scan to look for calcium-rich plaque in their arteries, and there's zero plaque, it's harder to make an argument exactly. that you should put them on a drug. Right. So, so it's all about inflammation. Exactly. So, so what I do, my standard sort of workup is I do an advanced lipid panel. So the advanced yep. lipid panel will not only give you what the regular panel does, which is not that helpful, but then it will give you the particle number, which I think is LDL particle number, which is important. Gives you the amount of small LDL as opposed to the medium and large, and it's a small, dense particles, which are the dangerous particles. Yep. So you can have a high cholesterol and your total particle number is not so high and then or your small LDL is not high but your large fluffy LDL is high and that's benign and that's good cholesterol so why would you want to lower that and in yep. addition to that I mean you know obviously it measures the C-reactive protein an inflammatory number but it also measures LPPLA2 which is yes which is another inflammatory marker because the next step is if there is some abnormality, I do a calcium score test and you see if there's plaque. But the LPLA2 number, well, actually, to me, is an indicative. If, if that's high, then you've got to be concerned about the plaque because if you have plaque in your arteries, it's ruptured plaque, which is a problem. Plaque alone may not necessarily be a problem. I'm not saying it's good, but it may not necessarily be a problem. So when it ruptures, if it's so, stable. If it's stable. Yeah, exactly. So the LPLA2 marker is, is very important. And then, you know, the other marker, which I always look at, which I think is sort of a, another way of looking at this, is the LDL pattern. If the LDL pattern is A, that's basically the good LDL as opposed to B, which is the more dangerous. So they're all variations on, on the same thing. And it also gives you a, a number for lipoprotein A, which yep. is another risk factor for heart disease, which is genetic, but that can be a big risk factor for, for heart disease too. So the basic cholesterol test to me is almost useless. So once yep. you get a more comprehensive assessment, measuring the particle size, these other inflammatory markers, and then you get a calcium score test. And as you point out, if there's no plaque, then it, to me, it's moot whether you need a statin or not. I don't think you do, but I don't think there's an argument. If there's plaque, there's an argument whether you do it or not. That's another story there, but at least I understand the argument there. But you've you got to do that first and then make an intelligent decision from that. So I've, I've got to say, I use, to, to do that testing, I use Cleveland Heart Lab, yes. which is 
owned by uh, Quest Diagnostics. Quest, uh, that's and, exactly yep. what I use. Yep. Yeah. And and they're you know Quest bought Berkeley Heart Lab and Cleveland Heart Lab, and so the advantage of that is you can get this fabulous panel anywhere in the country because there, there's hardly any place where Quest is not available. So over time, I've gravitated towards making them my number one provider. And so if our readers want to know, where can I get this? Well, any place that's got Quest yep. will allow you to do that. So you're you're right. All these markers, lipoprotein little a uh, is genetically determined and it has an influence on clotting. It increases the risk of clot. What about, do you, do you ever use natokinase or lumbrokinase? I do. Both of those are enzymes, or lumbrokinase is from worms. It's a worm extract, and natokinase from soy. I do use those enzymes because they help break up clots or prevent clots. The only concern I have with them is I don't know how to measure what they're doing. Right. If you know how to measure what they're doing, I'd love to hear that. But I, I put people on them just because I think they work, but I'm... I'm never quite sure which one to use, whether you use natokinase or lumbarkinase. Lumbarkinase is a lot more expensive. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thinking along those. I think they're both great, but I, I'm not quite sure how to use them with precision. Yeah, I don't think there is a precise way. Um, I know uh, Giovanni Campanile, the cardiologist in my office, uses lumbarkinase a lot. I mean, that's his. he always uses that when, when the LPPLA is increased, but as it's you increased. said, is expensive. So we often use natokinase as an alternative. But I'm not sure how to measure it, except you know, just following these. If someone has bad numbers, we do a follow-up advanced lipid panel three months later. But there's yeah. an interesting new test that Dr. Giovanni is doing for people who have heart disease or these lipid panels that are off. He has someone come into my office once a month. I don't know where he comes from. And it says, it's called a CIMT. Oh, yeah. What's it? Carotid intimal media thickness. It's like a, it's a, a basically a sonogram of your carotid artery. It's sort of a more sophisticated version of the old sonogram. And it tells you the thickness of the internal wall of your carotid artery. So he finds that to be a, another helpful marker for heart disease because for all you listeners out there, the assumption is if you have plaque or some problems in your carotid artery, the assumption is you, you probably or possibly have it in other parts of your body as well. So he finds that a, quite a helpful tool in, in picking up early stages of heart disease. The other nice thing about CIMT, and, and I want to make it clear to our listeners, this is not the ultrasound that you get at a local church or, or health fair, you know, when you have these vans that come through and do ultrasounds on everybody. Those tests are looking for obstruction, right? This is a much more sophisticated test that is looking at very tiny variations. We're talking about, you know, a tenth of a millimeter variations in the thickness of the lining of the arteries that go to the brain, the carotid arteries. And the big advantage of doing that test is that it changes pretty quickly with diet and lifestyle and supplements. So you can do that test on somebody and it shows that their arteries are thicker, the, wall, the walls are thicker than they should be. You can put them on a dietary program in three to six months, you can see it improve. Yep. So it's a, it's a really good feedback system for what you're doing. Whereas if you're doing a coronary cal calcium score, that doesn't change for one to two years. Yep. 
right? So you don't get that immediate feedback. So that, to me, the number one advantage of the CIMT is it's a functional test that tells you whether what you're doing is working. It's a, I think it's a fabulous test. I wish it was more readily available. The availability is pretty sketchy yeah. around the country. No, no, I agree. I'm using that more and more. And I, I got introduced to it by Giovanni. I had no idea about it. But I, I, you know what? I, I do want to just, I think we should talk about this idea of cholesterol being bad for, for one. And, you know, people need to understand that LDL and HDL aren't even cholesterol. You know, they're lipoproteins. The proteins. They're, they're not carrying the cholesterol. They're sort of like boats carrying the cholesterol. You know, there's such a misnomer about cholesterol. And, and so many, most people, in fact, especially the older generation, to them, that's the most important marker of their health. You know, they'll come in and they'll say, oh, my cholesterol is low, and they think they're healthy. It's so interesting how we've been brainwashed to think that, you know, cholesterol is such an important marker for, or a low cholesterol is a very important marker for good health. And then the second, I want your take and, on that. And the, therefore, they should eat a low cholesterol diet. Okay, so this is what That's I, so that issue, was a, yeah. the, the next thing I wanted to discuss. The, the second myth that eating cholesterol, you know, if you have high cholesterol, you shouldn't, you should take cholesterol out of your diet, which is this other yeah. myth. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, again, that gets back to what I was saying about Vercal is that, you know, Vercal said heart disease is inflammation. And then later there was research done by, I think the guy's name was Anichkow, a Russian uh, pathologist who took rabbits and he fed them dried eggs. And the rabbits got rip-roaring heart disease. And so he concluded that it must be the fat, specifically the cholesterol in the diet, that caused heart disease. Now, there's a big issue that's left out here, which is that rabbits are vegetarian, <laughs> right? That, that what do they eat? Rabbits eat lettuce and vegetables. And here you're giving them these dried eggs. And then the other thing is when you freeze dry eggs, they become rancid. Right. So they become toxic substances. And so he's, you know, is it the egg or is it the, the way that the egg was prepared that did that? But nobody was asking those questions. They just said, oh, it's the fat. And that led us down a path that ended up with a lot of people dying from heart disease because we were told don't eat cholesterol. But you know what? Sugar's OK. <laughs> right. You know, you can eat all the sugar you want. Carbs are fine, but don't eat fat. And I got to see, you know, Nathan Pritikin was behind that. It's all about fat. Fat's the villain. Don't eat the fat and you'll be fine. And But then people are eating all this junk food. So heart disease actually went up. And as you said earlier, that drives up your triglycerides and lowers your HDL. And that's at least as significant, if not more significant, than an elevated LDL cholesterol. You got high triglycerides. They fill up your liver with fat. They make you insulin resistant, predispose you to diabetes, and that drives inflammation more than anything else. Yeah, and most of your cholesterol is actually made in the body. Your, the, yep. the cholesterol yep. you Not eat- Not in your diet. Yeah, it doesn't really affect your, your cholesterol levels that much. And I think we should, you know, we'll, I'm sure there'll be some questions that address this, but, you know, how we actually deal with a high cholesterol is not with a low-fat diet. The quickest way to bring down- or improve your lipid markers and numbers is actually a low sugar diet, a low carbohydrate diet rather than a low fat diet. Yep, absolutely. 
Okay, so now we got to take a short break, and when we get back, we'll take some questions. Now more than ever, it's important to have an optimally functioning immune system. Be ready for whatever life throws your way with Thorn's suite of immune support products. From immune-supported vitamins to time-tested botanicals, Thorn has formulas that support immune function from every angle. Not sure what your body might be missing? Visit Thorn.com to take an immune quiz and receive a recommended immune solution that's right for you. Learn more at Thorn.com. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. So we're back, and now it's time to answer questions that are coming in from our community. The first question we have this week for Frank comes from a listener who asks, what are the warning signs of clogged arteries? Well, that's an important question because once you're getting signs of a clogged artery, that's serious and you need to get that sorted out as soon as possible. And in fact, if you're getting chest pain from it, you go either to your doctor to probably more likely to the ER. So most of what we're talking about are the early signs of heart disease where it actually for the most part asymptomatic. If you're getting signs of clogged arteries, that means there's not enough blood getting past those clogs or those pl- that plaque in your arteries. Then we're talking about sort of later stages of heart disease, which need much more serious interventions. Chest pains, shortness of breath, tingling in your arms or chest. Sometimes it presents as reflux or people perceive it as reflux. But once you start getting symptoms like that, then you know you have a serious problem. Go straight to the emergency room and, and have it checked out. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to, to not put that off. Some people, because of the pandemic, said, I don't want to go to a hospital and get exposed to the virus. But you may not get the virus, but then what happens if you have a heart attack? Right. I will compliment our healthcare system on doing an amazing job for treating people with acute heart attacks if they Abs- get them absolutely. soon enough. I have no issues with what the cardiologists have accomplished when it comes to being able to put in a stent or give an enzyme that breaks up a clot. Is We do a great job in this country, I think, for dealing with heart attacks. So it's not the kind of thing you want to fool around with. You know, Now, once if the person's had the treatment, if they've had a stent put in, et cetera, that's the time to work on preventing a second heart attack. And that's when all the stuff we're talking about comes in, decreasing the inflammation, changing the diet, et cetera. Couldn't agree more. Next question we have, Bob, for you is what causes high cholesterol? Well, I think you already started talking about this earlier, which is that most cholesterol is made in the liver, right? It's not primarily a dietary thing. And I can tell you from over three decades of experience of having told people in the past, well, cut out all your cholesterol, cut out your fat, and their LDL cholesterol doesn't come down, doesn't come down at all, right? So the diet really has a minimal effect. It's more what's going on in the liver. Now, the number one trigger of super high cholesterol production in the liver is genetics. The number two trigger is eating too many refined carbohydrates, as you already mentioned. 
So cutting out those refined carbohydrates, which end up causing fat to accumulate in the liver. That's a very interesting concept. You eat sugar and it ends up causing fat to build up in the liver. Yeah. We know how that works. It, the sugar turns on enzymes that actually produce fat in the liver. It's called de novo lipogenesis, right? De novo means newly produced. And that, that's the cause of fatty liver is too much sugar. So that's really what we want to be addressing is people eating too much refined carbohydrates and too much sugar. And the only reason we haven't gone down that route is because of, of big ag and the big food companies that make processed foods that want to sell us sugar. If it hadn't been for them disrupting the science, companies that make sugar-sweetened veg, uh, vegetables, sugar-sweetened pops and things like that, you know, they basically subverted the science. So Frank, here's a question for you. What exercise strengthens your heart most directly? What's the best exercise for the heart? Well, I, I, if I had to choose one, I would say aerobic exercise. But, you know, not only aerobic exercise. I mean, I think strength training is important. And there was a study recently that I saw which confirms what I've always believed, that stretching is really important for blood vessels and the heart because when you're treating the heart you obviously treating the you want to treat the blood vessels as well because it's the blood vessels which may create problems with putting more strain on the heart and what's interesting about what I found interesting about this new study on the importance of stretching and heart health was my yoga teacher was a direct student of Mr. Iyengar. You know, Ayen, everyone knows Iyengar Yoga. And he had this yeah, studio him, in yeah. Pune in India. And he had a whole heart clinic that he actually treated. People used to come from the hospital. They worked with cardiologists there. And they used to treat sort of post-cardiac patients and, and cardiac patients with yoga, putting them in these sort of restorative or these really stretching out their bodies. And so he was a huge believer in the importance of yoga to treat heart health and, and not just the calming effects of yoga, but the actual physical effects of the body on stretching your musculoskeletal system. The assumption being when you're stretching your musculoskeletal system, you're stretching the fascia and you're actually also stretching the blood vessels and making them a little bit more um, stretchy so that they don't tighten up and cause high blood pressure and heart problems. Interesting. Interesting. Very, uh, it's really interesting. And it kind of leads to a question I have for you, which is what's going on when you hear about these famous marathon runners that kill over a heart attack? I think that Jim Fix was a really good example of that, that people are, you know, they're thin, they seem to be extraordinarily healthy, and then they go out for a run and they kill over. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think it's sort of what we talked about before, partly inflammation. You know, a lot of these older athletes used to eat these high-carb diets. Yep, yep. And also too much stress. You know, marathon yep. running, I don't know how – I mean, I think it may be good for your head. I don't think it's good for your body. You know, I see so many marathon runners who come in with adrenal, you know, their adrenals are burnt out. So I think for all the above reasons, I mean, I'm not surprised that marathon runners can have these heart attacks. I agree. So I have a question for you now, Bob. What should I never eat to keep my heart healthy? And what foods are good for it? Well, I would uh, I'd add my own part of the question, which is that the number one thing to do to keep your heart healthy is to avoid smoke right? Not, it's not, you know, part of the diet, but people often don't think about their lungs. And, you know, the number one risk factor for heart disease is 
cigarette smoking and pretty close second is air pollution. So keep your lungs healthy. And then as far as food goes, I would say I don't like to use the word never because then that sets the person up to get fearful about their diet. But I would say to minimize sugar. And, you know, we've talked about that several times is like the the least amount of sugar and trans fats, maybe trans fats are probably worse than sugar. So if there's a never eat, it would be trans fats. And then, you know, right under the, that would be to minimize sugar. And, you know, again, I tell people not to be too fanatic about it. If you do want to have a little bit of a, you know, piece of pie or cookie after dinner, then make sure that dinner included foods that are good for you. And what are things that are good for you? Well, probably extra virgin olive oil, top of the list, yeah. right? That's the core of the Mediterranean diet. What's the best diet for preventing heart disease? The Mediterranean diet. Study after study has shown this to be true. And what's the center of that is olive oil and lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. Right. So and be, olive oil to top of the list, beets. And, not, and be liberal with your olive oil. And, you know, just, I mean, tablespoons of it every day. Berries, anything that's like really colorful. Berries, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, organic, of course. And it turns out that even frozen blueberries are still really high and these beneficial phytochemicals. Curcumin we've talked about, so curried broccoli and cauliflower, really good way to go. And I would add to avoid cooking with the vegetable oils. I mean, we should do a whole podcast on these vegetable oils um, because when you heat the vegetable oils that we got conned into believing were healthy because they were low in saturated fat, are, you know, become rancid when you heat them and they're basically like trans fat. So I'd tell people to think of vegetable oils as trans fats. And so don't cook with your regular vegetable oils, you know, cook with olive, you know, extra virgin olive oil or even avocado oil or butter or even ghee. But vegetable oils, I think, are put right up there with the trans fats. I do like rice bran oil. If you can get a, an unprocessed rice bran oil, which is very high in vitamin E, and so it's that that's not in the category of the vegetable oils. It's its own category. It's got a very high smoke point, so it can handle the high heat. It's another alternative, but I agree that olive oil is, should be at the top of the list. So, Frank, what's the difference between cholesterol and insulin levels? That's kind of a long discussion, but maybe you could kind of give us the quick view. And that's an inter- interesting question because I think people should worry more about the insulin levels than the cholesterol levels. Yeah. I don't think cholesterol levels are such an important marker for health, whereas I think insulin levels are probably one of the most important markers for health. So insulin is a hormone that's produced mainly in your pancreas and produced usually as a response to sugar and carbs to help balance your carbohydrate metabolism. And once your insulin level, once you're producing too much insulin and you become resistant, your insulin levels start going up. And that's usually a precursor to from diabetes to heart disease to all sorts of problems. So your insulin levels, with insulin being a hormone, are more important probably to measure than cholesterol levels. As we talked about, not even measuring cholesterol, we're measuring these lipoproteins that carry cholesterol. I totally agree. Uh, I think the best way I think about it is that insulin is inflammatory, right? So you obviously need insulin to keep your blood sugar normal. But too much insulin, as soon as it gets above the normal range, drives inflammation and drives aging. It's the number one hormone 
for driving yep. aging in the body. So, you know, we could debate for a while about the pros and cons of lowering cholesterol, but keeping insulin in the normal range is clearly a worthwhile goal. Yep. All right, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much for listening. We always appreciate having you on. Thank you, Frank, for the absolute pleasure of sharing this podcast with me. Feelings are mutual. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Research. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.